0: I invite you to open your Bibles once again to Psalm 119. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let me ask, Father, now as we come under the hearing of your word, that you would help us to understand that which you are teaching us here in this inspired, inerrant word of God. Amen. Well, last week we began looking at Psalm 119, and we said that it set before us this theme of the dynamic supernatural power of God's Word. In the midst of all the psalmist's varying circumstances of his life, everything that he's going through, ups and downs, the psalmist finds solace in the Word of God. He expounds for us the blessed man of Psalm 1 that we read there, and he he expands on the many-sided qualities of Scripture as it's found in Psalm 19. And and so what he does is he sets before us in this poetic style the sufficiency of Scripture. Almost every verse that we find here, about 175 of the 176, uh, refers to the Word of God, Remember, he called the Scripture last week. We learned he called it Torah, the law. He called it testimonies, precepts, statutes, commands, righteous rules. He called it the Word, and he, and he referred to the promises of the Word. And that scriptural focus is arranged in those 22 stanzas. They each have eight verses, and each stanza begins with one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we looked at Aleph last week. Well, this week is the letter bet. Each of the eight verses from verse 9 to verse 16 begins with that letter. And and in verse 9, the word that that he begins with here is the Hebrew word for how. And so this stanza begins with this weighty question. How can a, a young man keep his way pure? Matthew Henry says... By what means may the next generation be made better than this? It's one interpretation. Spurgeon put it How shall a young man become and remain practically holy? And so that's the question that will be answered in this stanza. And so the theme, I guess you would say, is purity. The New King James translates it How can a young man cleanse his way? And so that's what we'll be looking at. How, how are we to remain pure? How are we to cleanse our way? But before we do and answer that question, I, I want, we, need, we need to look at the assumption that is being made here to understand if he's calling us to be cleansed, how can I cleanse my way? The assumption is that this young man is not pure, is not cleansed. Cleansing, the need for cleansing, implies that His ways are polluted. The point is, we are not clean. We're not pure. We are indeed evil by nature. King David says in Psalm 51, we all come into this world as sinners. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Proverbs 22, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Genesis 8, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And that word uh, youth can mean infancy. And so we are impure from birth. Even in the womb, David says. Proverbs asks, who can then... I have made my heart pure, I am, who can say, I have made my heart pure and I am clean from sin? Who can who can say that? It's Proverbs 20, verse 9. And, and it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one can say that. Because we're all sinners. And do you agree with that? Is that is that the truth you hold to, that no one is clean from sin? Do you agree with Jeremiah who says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked? Who can understand it? Jeremiah I mean, every day in media, on social media, somewhere you're going to hear, follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Well, the Bible says you might not want to do that because the heart is wicked. And so, do you agree with Solomon? The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts through their lives, Ecclesiastes 9. Do you do you say, yeah, that's true? I've seen it people out there, (laughs) those hearts are wicked. Or are you willing to say that about yourself? So this is what Scripture teaches. We just don't see ourselves as wicked as God sees us. And yet we are. You know, with the exception of my granddaughter. (laughs) All children are born in sin. Every child, even nor, of course, every child's brought into this world is corrupt, is full of evil, they're impure, they are depraved. Uh, I know they look cute and innocent. And when you pick up uh, my granddaughter, you pick up your granddaughter, or you pick up your, your, your children for the first time and you hold them, the first thing that comes to mind isn't, look how wicked they are. But see, that's the reality. I am holding a little sinner. That's the truth. We are all born with original sin. We're all born totally depraved. Not that we're as bad as we could be, but every part of ourselves are marked by sin. And it gets even worse. Besides that original corruption, which is enough, obviously, to condemn us, we're all brought into this world with, with, there in, with these ideas of that we have this propensity for particular sins. Uh, and, and particularly young people are subject to them. And that's who this psalm, uh, uh, this part of the psalm addresses. It's addressed to how can a young man keep his way pure. And so it's addressed to the young. And, and so let me address the young people. I know we don't have uh, a lot of young people. That's why we pray. Um, uh, but uh, just if it's for you too, those of you who, though, are between, the, say, the age of 12 and 30... This can be a person who's young, can refer to babyhood, actually, or adulthood. However, the context here seems to be to suggest someone who would struggle with youthful lusts, youthful passions, as Paul calls them. So let me ask, what is the condition of your heart? And I want you to notice something. I'm not asking what good deeds have you done lately. So when I say to you, what is the condition of your heart, you don't say, well, I went to church. That... that, that, that may reveal something, but I'm asking, what is the condition of your heart? Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And so it's what's in your heart that matters. See, the reason why youth, and everyone really, but you struggle with evil thoughts, hatred, sexual sin, lying and slander, and so on and so forth, is not because you're an otherwise really good person, but you slip up now and then. See, the reason is because your heart is defiled by sin. Even as a believer, that, that is true. True. It doesn't cease to amaze me. I lived about, I guess we lived about a mile from the, the school that had the shooting in Parkland, Florida when um, that happened. And it doesn't, it doesn't cease to amaze me that at some point in all the coverage of that, there was someone who knew the individual who committed these atrocities, that atrocity, and, they, and the person said, I've known them all their life. They're so good. They were such a good person. I don't understand it. Now, a person who is, we think of as good from our standard can pr- commit these things. And, and, and it may have been easy to hide something like that for, that for their family and friends. But the truth is, he wasn't good. How do I know? Jesus said, murder comes from the heart. And so he wasn't good from the heart. He wasn't a normal good person. What happened in that case is the evil that was in his heart was expressed. But here's the thing you need to remember. This is true of all of us. I'm not good. You're not good. We are corrupt from the heart. James Boyce in describing this says, if you try to drive these demons that are in your heart, as it were, by yourselves, they will only return in greater numbers, and your latter state will be worse than the first. Now, what is he referring to? You may know the story in Luke 11 to 24 to 26. Jesus says, when the unclean spirit, talking about demons, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. This is Luke 11, 24 to 26. And when it comes, it'll find the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, the point of this story, this parable, among other things, is that there is no lasting value in mere outward reform. I'm not saying it's wrong. Even if your heart's evil, it's always a good thing not to commit outward sin. But you, you cannot go forward in your own strength and say, I'm going to fix this by stopping something. Uh, uh, you won't get that very, you won't get very far. Why? There'll be this vacuum in your heart, this particular evil, whatever it may be. And and, and you will try to get rid of it on your own, but you won't be able to, or you'll remove that habit and you haven't changed anything inside, and that's what the parable's getting at, and so it'll be replaced with other bad habits. You cast out the one demon, and seven more come, and you're worse off, and it's this never-ending cycle of sinfulness. That's why we all keep struggling with sin. We can't beat it ourselves. It's not, just not possible. And so something deeper has to take place in our lives if there's going to be lasting change. And that something deeper is where the Word of God comes in. And so let me summarize. Every time you sin, it tells you, it tells me, uh, the condition of my heart. And just stopping a particular action will not change my heart. Uh, A person can say, I'm getting better. I'm going to get better. I won't curse anymore, for example. But it's not enough. Again, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean what? The outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, then the outside may also be clean. Not cursing is good. This isn't a suggestion to say, well, I haven't fixed that yet, so I got to keep going until God does it. That's not the point. But it it, it does not clean the inside of the cup. It's an outward expression. It does not clean your heart. And only God can clean your heart. Only Christ can clean your heart. Only the Holy Spirit can clean your heart. This is why the psalmist prays in verse 10, for God to not let him wander from his commands. God must do it. And why he prays in verse 12, for the Lord to teach him his statutes. God must do it. God must do the work in his heart. However, that being said, God does this heart cleansing through what? A means. He does it through the word of God, the Bible. You know, we always talk about how we're, we're passive in our justification. God, God regenerates our hearts and, and He gives us a gift of faith and, and we believe and we're saved. But in our sanctification, when we're coming pure, He, He, it's, it's, it's the best way to say it right now for the point I'm making. It's a both end. God does all the work through His Word, but we have to pick up the Word. And so it's, it's, it's synergistic in that way. We have a part to play. And according to our passage, the, it's the Word of God that has the power to help us. And so the, the theme of these verses is living holy and the road of those holy, uh, to that holiness is the power of the Word of God. And, and our passage tells us there's three things that are, uh, that the Word of God has power to do. Verse 9, the first one, it has power to purify you. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Uh, The word pure there means make clean. It's talking about being morally pure. And the way we go about cleansing ourselves is by guarding our hearts according to the word. It's, It's that simple. The picture here is like the one in the Garden of Eden after the fall. What do we read in Genesis? God drove out the man from the garden. Why? Fell in sin, his sin, and and east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword and turned everyone away. The guard the way to uh, put the guard, the angel there to guard the way to the tree of life, preventing him from going back and making things worse. And see, the Word of God serves as our cherubim, as it were. It serves as our flaming sword, guarding our hearts so that we do not let sin in our lives. And all the while cleansing us from the corruption from within. That's what the Word of God does. And so the Scripture has the power. The Scripture does. By faith, when we receive it, when the power through the power of the Spirit has the power to purify. Second, it has the power to restrain us from wandering. Verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Let me not wander from the Scripture. If you want to seek the Lord, notice that it's the way to do it, is to follow in the path of His commands. You know what wander means? It means to go astray. The Word of God keeps us from going astray. It keeps us on the path of righteousness. And so that's another way it shows its power. It keeps us from wandering. Third, it's kind of a summary. The Word has power to keep you from sin. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, to store up his word in our hearts I means not just to read it, but also to study it, meditate upon it, memorize it. It's out of the treasure house of the word stored up in your heart that you will be keep from running back to sin again and again and again. John Bunyan, writer of Pilgrim's Progress, said this This book, he's talking about the Bible, not his book, this book, the Bible, will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. Either you will be in the Word, and it will keep you from sin, or you'll neglect the Word, and and then you'll you'll find yourself buried in sin. But see, if you'll meditate on God's Word and commit it to memory, God will use it to keep you from sin. One preacher said, even if you don't retain it and think you're wasting your time in reading God's Word, you're not. There's nothing wrong with just reading through it every year. I I, I had to do it in Bible college, read through the word over and over and over. I knew the word. And then I became a pastor. And then I was reading the word, unfortunately. This is a confession of my sin reading the word for my job to preach. And I wasn't doing it uh, just to read through the scriptures because, well, I didn't want to be a legalist. Well, I learned the hard way. And a lot of the things I knew in scripture I have forgotten. Um and and so I, I you know I have to train Nathan and I told him there's gonna come a point where you're gonna think, I don't need to read through it like this, I don't wanna be a legalist. Do it anyway. Read through it. Repent of being a legalist if that's what you're doing, but keep reading the word. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. God promises you that studying his word will have a positive effect on your life. It's a promise. And his effects are all-encompassing. It affects your worship. Look at verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Uh, uh, blessed, it's, it's a form of praise. We will worship. Why? We're going to worship anyway. Our hearts, as Calvin said, are idol factories. We, we were created to worship. We always acknowledge that there's something greater that needs to be worshipped. And since the fall, we chase after all kinds of idols to worship. You know, we make fun of the Old Testament saints. They they would do this. It's a great picture. They would take wood. And then uh, somebody would carve that wood. They themselves would do this, right? They'd carve the wood. And and then they'd make this statue. They made it. And then they put the statue down and then bow to the statue and it's called a God. And we say, that's so foolish. And yet you do the same thing every day. You take man-made things, people like celebrities or athletes, even ourselves, and worship ourselves. You know, you are a God. That's another saying for today. You are God. You are God. Or you look to someone else. But see, when we're taught by the Word of God, when the Scriptures are, are, are filling our hearts and minds and our praise is lifted up, it's lifted up to the one true God. And so our knowledge of Scripture affects our worship, and it affects who you worship. Second, it affects your speech. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. Remember what James taught us when we were in there? You know, the tongue is what? A fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. It's set, uh, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the whole course of life. Hey, remember, we were taught that the, the tongue set on fire by hell, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. You know, James didn't hold back, he was letting you know this is what your tongue is. And why? Well, we bless God with our tongue, we curse people who are created in the image of God. All that to say, our tongues are by nature evil. They're a world of unrighteousness. But see, when our lives are saturated with the Word of God, it it is blessing that ends up pouring forth from our lips, declaring all of God's rules. So when we're cleansed by the Word of God, we want to declare the Scripture. We want people to know who Jesus is, that He's the Son of God. We want them to know that that Christ died for sinners and rose again, that they could be saved that they could be declared righteous. We want them to know the truth about themselves. They are indeed sinners, but that God has done something about it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And they, we want, to, want them to know this is what God, who created this whole world, wants from you. Uh, and so our time in the Word affects our speech. This is one of the first things that I saw change in my life. I used to curse like a sailor. You know, the the people, I don't know, you know, I have friends that still do it, that, are, you know, unbelieving friends. You can't have a full sentence without cursing four times. The words don't have any relationship to what you're trying to say, but you just curse so much. It's like, a, you know how we say like, it's like, it's like, at least I do. It's like, you know, it's like like. It's it's a curse word though. Instead, we replace it and we just curse. That's how I was. And then it changed. And, and, and then I noticed others... Uh, that cursed a lot. And, then, and people began thinking, I'm a little weird for talking about Jesus. I told you about going to friendlies and preaching the gospel. I still went to bars after I got saved, but I would start talking about Jesus. People didn't, you know, that's just weird. I got warned by family members. You know, people are talking. They're saying that's weird. But see, the point I'm making is that it, it, knowing Jesus Christ, it's not like I picked up a bunch of scriptures and then read James. Oh, I got to change my tongue. I better work on that. It was just that my life changed. Does that mean I never cursed again? No. The point is that it was just the, the, the trajectory of my life changed when it came to that area. Um, and so the Word of God, as you're saturated in it, affects your speech. Third, it changes your priorities. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. You know, before I was a Christian, my goal this is what I wrote in my yearbook. In my yearbook, my senior year, I wrote, I want to become rich and buy my dad a Cadillac. I never became rich, and he bought himself a Cadillac, and I drove it. <laughs> it, it was to become rich. That was my priority. That's, that's, that was what I thought I would find delight in. You know, in the 80s, you had the posters that said, um, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Well, that didn't stick around after I got saved. My priorities changed. Our delight... Not perfectly, I know, in this world, but our delight should be in Christ. Our delight should be in His Word. That's what Psalm 19 teaches. Uh, And and so all of a sudden, the things that I delighted in changed. And so it affects our priorities, the things that I thought were important. Before that, studying the Bible never popped up on my radar screen as I got to get that in, but then I got saved. It affects our thinking. Look at verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. To meditate means to study. It means to ponder, to fix your eyes on something means to capture the attention of, to give regard to. And so he's saying, look, I I, want to give careful attention to the study of God's Word. And that prolonged meditation affects the way you think. I mean, Paul says it, renew your mind. It renews your minds, conforming you more and more to the mind of Jesus. So we begin to think as Christians are supposed to think. We begin to think like Christ. Fifth, it affects your feelings. Look at verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. You know, I just talked about how my de- the things that were important to me changed. Well, whatever captures your heart the most is what you delight in. And so, what, what I love the most, I will speak about the most. What I love the most is what I'll be most emotional about. This is an emotional word. It can mean to cry out. When the Word of God has captured our hearts will we'll cry out in delight that we have such a treasure at our disposal. I have the Word of God. That, that's what the psalmist does. That's what, blessed is the man who knows the Word. And Psalm 19, it's just a, it, it's the delight. I, I want it more than gold. It, it just satisfies me. I'll delight in it. And so the Word of God affects our worship. It affects our speech. It affects our priorities. It, it affects the way we think. It affects our feelings. And, and so we must declare it. We must delight in it. We must meditate. Upon it, we must remember God's inerrant and holy word. And see, when our hearts are washed in God's word, what happens is godly actions follow. This is, by the way, why we don't just preach morality. Doesn't mean that we're against morality, but that's not what we preach mainly. When I was a youth pastor, this is, Twenty, thirty, whatever, many years ago. Uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, the big thing was true love waits. And what teenagers would do, and I had a youth group of 50, 60 kids, most of them unsaved from the streets that came from the high school. And so the idea was you were going to wait to get married uh, to have sexual relations, something we should do. Biblically, that's the teaching. And so these kids would have to put on rings. Well, if if most of my kids put on rings... Well, they'd just be lying because it was too late at that point. But this emphasis on we got to tell them more and more, and we did. They need to know these things. But it was like, how many times do I need to tell them this is wrong? I mean, just yelling at them is not going to change their heart. Well, then I was asked to speak at one of the conferences, you know, local little gathering. All these teens were there. Everybody got up there and shared all the perils of having sex before marriage and all these things. None of it from the Word of God. It was more like, you know, science stuff and, and biology and all this stuff. And so I got up and I said, the title of my message was, Why Virgins Go to Hell? And I point wasn't that it doesn't matter. The point is, you stopping having sex and putting a ring on your finger doesn't save you. You could not, you may keep the command outwardly, but you're evil from the inside. You need Jesus Christ. That is not to say they should say, oh, thank you, June. I can just go out and do whatever I want until God captures my heart. That's not true. You'll be held accountable to God for that. But the point is morality doesn't save. Christianity is not a religion to make an otherwise good person better. See, Christianity's original takes a totally depraved enemy of God, subdues them, and washes them from the inside through the cleansing power of the Word of God, applied to the heart by the Spirit of God, and makes them more and more conformed to the image of Christ. It's from the inside out. And and as we are cleansed, the morals follow D.L. Moody said, the only way to keep a broken vessel full is by keeping the faucet turned on. Keeping the faucet of God's Word running repeatedly through your mind will clear out the garbage and make you poor, pure. Excuse me. Now, you know that we can't be perfect this side of heaven. I'm not claiming that. I mentioned it earlier that we're sinners. But as believers, we're declared righteous. We're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In that sense, in that sense only, God sees us as, as, as holy, as pure, because He sees us in Christ. But we're not fully pure now, are we? We're still sinners, this side of heaven. And yet, even though we're saved from that sin, and we're guaranteed eternity, the Word of God encourages us to pursue this purity. And verse 9 tells us, and that's what we learn there, and, and, and Isaiah 1.16 says it clearly. It says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. And see, that that the point is that it's through the washing of the word that you're purified. Peter says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her. Sanctification is growing in holiness. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so through the preaching of the Word and the teaching of the Word of God, those things is how we become holy, and that's why it has to be a priority in our church. It must be a priority for all of us. To want to hear the preaching and learn the word, hear the teaching and learn the word so that we will grow in holiness, both young and old. Now, as I said, the stanza that we are looking at, the second letter of the alphabet, Beth, is actually spelled out, it's the word house. And it's interesting because one writer said here, here's a good way of understanding what we're talking about. The main thrust is making our hearts a home for the Word of God. And that is a good way of putting it. The Word of God must take up residence in our hearts. And it must begin taking up residence at a very young age. This is true of all the biblical saints. I'm going to give you two examples. I want you to think of Daniel. Remember the story of Daniel? He decided to obey God early in life. Daniel and his three friends were taken from their home in Jerusalem. They were brought to Babylon, and they had to serve in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. And they were chosen and they were given the best of the food of Babylon. And they were favored civil servants. But we read early in chapter first chapter, Daniel resolved not to, defi- to, excuse me, to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, seems such a petty thing. I mean, he just got taken into captivity. And this young kid, he he's given this position. He has this opportunity to eat this food. And, and James Boyce says, No, this was the first of many tests that came into Daniel's life during his time in Babylon. And, and it may seem petty, says, says, uh, but, but it established a pattern in his life that he was going to obey the Word of God. To us whether he ate the king's food or drank his wine seems a small matter. Why fuss over it? Uh, but see, uh, what Boyce gets at is that those small habits form a pattern. And, and they, they determine the course and outcome of our lives. From a very young age, Daniel determined to follow God. Even in the little matters... And what that did is set him on a path of purity. It it set him on a path of obedience. And it gave him the strength when he had to face the lion. And and, and so that's the point. It shapes him. From a very young age, if you're here and you are young, well, then study the Word of God. Make it a priority. I'm not saying never watch a movie, no go hang out with your friends, go to a concert, all that stuff. Study the Word of God. Make sure you're reading it. Let me give you one last example. I'll close with this. This is the ultimate example. You know where I'm going with this. It's the example of Christ. You know, Christ's childhood, we don't have much information besides his birth narratives. There is one story, though, when he was a child, and it's found in Luke chapter 2. Jesus was 12 years old. Uh, they went up to Jerusalem according to custom. They were going up to the temple, that is. And when they, when the feast was ended, right, they would return home. But Jesus stayed in Jerusalem. But his parents didn't realize this. Uh, Mary and Joseph didn't realize what was happening. And you would travel in a caravan, you know, all these people. And they just assume, well, he must be with other relatives as he's traveling. But they didn't find him with the other relatives, So they they went back to Jerusalem, and remember, you don't pick up a cell phone and say, "Jesus, where you at?" Um, They didn't hop in a taxi cab and run back to Jerusalem. This was, you know, you imagine you can feel the intensity of of, of they're afraid. After three days, after three days, they find him in the temple. He's sitting among the teachers. He's listening to them. He's asking them questions. All who heard him were told were amazed of his understanding and his answers and then his parents see him and they were astonished and his mother said to him son why have you treated us so why why did you do this your father and I've been searching for you with great distress lose your child for 3 days and tell me how you feel when you find him And they're just hanging out. Jesus is just hanging out. But this is what he says. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Even Jesus, even Christ, the author of the Word of God, spent his childhood meditating upon, learning, studying, discussing the Word of God. See, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say when Jesus faced his temptation as his ministry started and he was driven into the, the woods and he had to face Satan, that what happened in the synagogue at 12 prepared him for what happened there. What did Jesus do when he's faced with this temptation? He's hungry, Satan's there, and he attacks him. He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. He learned the word of God at a young age. And my point should be clear. We must begin storing up God's word in our heart. I don't think anyone here would disagree that difficult times are coming. And so we need to have the word of God if we're going to have the courage to stand. Start when you are young, as the sermon title says, but it's never too late. It's never too late to begin prayerfully meditating upon and and studying and memorizing God's all sufficient, gospel-saturated, Christ-focused Word. And if you're not sure how to begin, join the Bible studies that are starting up in September. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for those you have gifted to translate your Word into our language. We thank you, Lord, that you preserved your word. We thank you, Father, you have gifted men that help us to understand your word. It's our prayer, Lord, that your spirit would enable us to begin reading and studying and comprehending your word all the more, especially as it reveals to us the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen.